0: your legs are tired you can stay seated uh, but just out of reverence for the word of god if you'd like to stand with me please do and we'll read verses 1 through 13 out of the book of romans romans chapter 10 notice paul's heart for the nation of israel and may it may that may that alone convict us brethren My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does the things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That's the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice the shift in the mood in that verse. From a probability to a certainty. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him shall not be put to shame or disappointed. God always fulfills. For there is no... Difference, No distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You may be seated. I want to just start out this morning with a couple of illustrations from the Old Testament on how simple salvation is and how we complicate it so many times. You might not be familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 30, but that's exactly where Paul is quoting from here. And it was the end of the Decalogue, and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And he's reminding them that God wants their heart, that they were to circumcise their heart. And then Moses makes this incredible statement. He says, "This commandment is not too difficult. It's not too hard. It's not the Hebrew word, you don't probably care to know it, but it's Pala, <laughs> but it means mysterious. It means hidden. It means hard to comprehend, something that's just out of your reach. And that's why he uses these two illustrations. You don't have to ascend into heaven. You don't have to cross the sea, as it says in Deuteronomy. It is near you. And I think as somebody in a church that is passionate about evangelism, as we should be, and I hope this morning you will be a little bit more passionate than you were before you came, to know that the Word of God is not a difficult thing to share with people. We're not asking them to do the impossible. We're not asking them to empirically see the resurrection and empirically see the ascension of Christ into heaven. We're simply asking people to acknowledge that their heart Heart is far from God and that they need a Savior. Now, sinners don't like to do that, I will admit that. In fact, nobody in our flesh likes to be corrected. My wife has an ongoing dialogue with our children on the text thing on the phone, and she points out their flaws, and she's usually 99.9% of the time correct. And they don't like it. (laughs) And about three days later, she'll get another text and say, I'm sorry, Mom. And she'll look at me and she says, why do they always do that? And I said, you know what? We all do that. Nobody likes to be corrected. We don't like to be told we're sinners. And that's the rub of the gospel. But it's not a hard message to comprehend. And we're not asking people to do something that the grace of God won't help them to do. Now, in the Old Testament, we've got a couple of stories that kind of show us man's thinking about salvation. There was a guy named Naaman. He was a Syrian officer, and he made a raid into Israel, and they'd taken some captives back, and he enslaved a young Israeli girl in his home. And Naaman was plagued with leprosy. And the young girl told her mistress, Naaman's wife, I presume, I hope, if you are only back in Samaria, there's a prophet who could recover you of your leprosy. And so the wheels start turning in Naaman's mind. And he thinks like a human, a natural man would think. And so he says to himself, well, I must go then to the king who's in Samaria. And I must take 750 pounds of silver if I'm going to go. And I've also got to take 150 pounds of gold if I'm going to go and get this kind of thing done. And I've also got to take 10 changes of garment. If God's going to do this, I must go see the highest authority. And this highest authority certainly is going to want all this appeasement, all these penances, all these works, and a promise and a pledge that I will never be like I was before. That's the way we think. That's the way Naaman was thinking. So when he gets to Israel, the king says, I can't do this. What are you coming to me for? You trying to pick a fight with us? You're going to go back and say, well, the king didn't do it. Well, Elisha gets wind of it. He says, send him to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So he goes to Elisha's house, and he's expecting Elisha to come out. He's expecting Elisha to call on his god. He's expecting Elisha to perform some kind of ceremony, waving his hands. That's, ex- that, that's the human thinking. You've got to do all this stuff. You know what he tells him? Go down to the river of Jordan and dip seven times. And he leaves in a rage. He says, I've come all this way to hear this simple message. I could have stayed back in Syria and taken a dip in one of our rivers. He had a smart servant. And his servant says to him, if Elisha had come out and he told you to do some great, difficult, mysterious, wonderful thing, you would have done it right away. How much more? Go down to the river and be made whole. That's how simple the gospel is. And we complicate it. We convolute it. We mix so many things with it that it's a miracle that any of us even get saved. <laughs> it is a miracle, by the way. <laughs> Another story. The children of Israel walking through the wilderness. Grumblers, gripers, bellyachers. Sound like a bunch of kids, don't they? <laughs> We've all raised them. And then they get to the point and they say, You've brought us out here to starve. You've brought us out here to to die of thirst. And we are sick and tired. We loathe this worthless bread. How do you think that made God feel? So the Lord sends serpents in, and they begin to bite people, and a lot of them die. And God comes up with a simple, simple solution. You make a brave serpent. You raise it up on a pole. And whoever is bit, all he has to do, this is it, no other requirement, you look and you will live. That's how simple salvation is. And how do we know that that's referring to salvation? Because Jesus Christ himself used it in an illustration with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was saying, how can a man be born when he's old? Can I enter the second time and enter my mother's womb and just redo this all? Nicodemus was so fixed on works salvation. He had 635 laws, and then he had all of his rabbinical teaching added onto those laws. And you're telling me all I have to do is believe and trust? That's just too simple. Now, Nicodemus got it, but it took three years. Then Jesus says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... That serpent represented all of their sin. I must be lifted up. I am going to represent all of your sin. I'm going to be the sin bearer for you. That whoever looked at that pole was made well. And Jesus says, whoever believes on me will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's how simple it is. Do you remember when you got saved? You didn't have to jump through any hoops, I hope. You didn't have to make any pledges to God that I was going to do this or I was going to be that. Because if you did, you might not be saved. Because, by the way, you can't do those things that you pledged. You will never do them. And that's the whole point of the law. You will never live up to the requirements of the law. Because the law speaks on this wise, whoever does them must live by them. James 2.10 is so clear. If I break one point of the law, I am guilty of all of it. All of it. And so if you want to be saved that way, good luck. Or you can do it the biblical way. And that's why Paul says, quoting the Deuteronomy story, Deuteronomy 11, 30, 11 through 14, God says this. He says, if you're off in captivity because you've been living in rebellion, he says, what you need to do is turn. The Hebrew word there is often translated repent. What did they need to repent of? They didn't need to repent and say, I'm going to keep all the laws. No, God says, I want your heart. I want you to trust me. I want you to love me with all your heart. That's all I'm requiring. And that's not too hard. That's not too difficult. It's not mysterious. It's not wonderful. It's not a miracle that I'm requiring of you. I'm asking you to trust me and to believe me. And so Paul quotes that in this passage. Now, the Hebrews had no one to blame for complicating the gospel but themselves. And none of us do, except for our own rebellion against God. Israel was pursuing the law in order to attain righteousness. We can go back to chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness... In other words, they weren't pursuing obedience. They weren't pursuing a law in order to come to God. They have attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But the Israelites, pursuing the law of righteousness, that was the way they were trying to be right with God. They have not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Why? because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For it was a stumbling stone as it is written. And then Paul drops down to verse 10, chapter 10, and his heart is broken for his own people. Lost Israel can pursue God. Isn't that amazing? A lot of times we don't think of lost people being Spiritually interested in anything. But there's an amazing thing that God has done, I think, for every human heart, and that He has given us a conscience. Everyone is aware of a moral law in their heart. And the Israelite here, Paul says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. These are unbelievers. These are people who are unregenerated. Cornelius is a perfect example. The Ethiopian eunuch is a perfect example of an unbeliever who yet, in his ignorance, and I think that there's people around you and I that whether they realize it or not, are looking and wanting to know about God, but they are totally ignorant of God's righteousness. About a month ago, my dog went off wandering like he often does. And it was about 8.30 at night, and I'm trying not to make a ruckus in the neighborhood, but I'm hollering and then kind of walking quietly and hoping he'll appear, but he doesn't. And so my neighbor at that very end of the block, i never met him before, he comes out and says, let me help you. And he goes and gets his nephew, and he says, we'll help you. So they go off in one direction, calling my dog, and I go off the other direction. Never did find him, by the way, but found him the next day. But that's not the point of my story. The point of the story is when I found him, I went walking down to meet my neighbor. And out of the blue, I just kind of spit out of my mouth. I said, are you a Christian? (laughs) And he looked at me almost like he was shocked. And he says, no, I'm not a Christian. He says, I am Catholic and I've stopped going to Mass. I don't understand any of it. Now I'm not saying that Catholics can't get saved, because Catholics get saved the same way you and I get saved by grace through faith. But anyway, most of us know that they're not going to hear the gospel in mass, right? So I'm not, I'm not I'm not pro go to mass and hopefully you'll get saved. No, that's not what I'm saying. Let's just just go back to my my illustration here, okay? (laughs) So he says to me, he says, I have been wondering about what real Christianity is all about. He was a lost guy, and he was completely ignorant. And Paul says these lost Jews are completely ignorant ignorant. In fact, Paul goes down to say in the rest of this chapter, how can they believe on him who they've not heard? How can you you can't you can't be ignorant, you can't be without knowledge of the facts of the gospel and believe. And the Jewish person was not aware of the facts of the gospel. In fact, the very thing that could save them they were rejecting and that was Christ. And so he gets down to verse 4, and he says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, this is probably the only difficult verse in this passage, and verse 5 is kind of difficult, but for Christ is the end of the law. Now, here's one case where knowing a little bit about the original language is helpful the word there is telos. We get the word telescope from the Greek word telos. And it means to be able to see the end of something. It can mean the termination. When you get to the end, that's the termination. The the, the termination is gone. It's done. It's finished. It also has another idea, and it means the goal or the purpose for something. And I think both those meanings blend together in this verse. Paul uses it in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, and he says this. He says, the end of the commandment. You know the rest of the verse? The end of the commandment is love from a pure heart. Now, he's not saying that's the termination, the the, the finality. He's saying that's the purpose of the commandment. Because Paul was writing Timothy some hard commandments. He says, Timothy, I just want you to get it right. The goal of these commandments is love. So when we put that idea in this verse. How was Christ the termination, the, the termination of the law? It had been fulfilled completely, hadn't it? There's no striving after the law. Christ came and did it for us. And that's why we don't need to complicate the gospel. Because Christ terminated the law. He was also the goal of the law. What I mean by that is all of the things that the law we speaking of were pointing to Christ. you remember what he told the Pharisees? He says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but they are which that testify of me. That's the purpose of the Old Testament law. And Christ was the end, the termination of all those things. Now Moses, on the other hand, he wrote about the righteousness if you're going to do it by the law. So there are two ways to be found righteous. One, you keep the law perfectly. Because that's what Moses is saying here. Deuteronomy chapter 26, and I'm not sure of the reference, the verse, says this. Cursed is the man... Who does not continue to do all the things that are written in the book of the law? And Christ, we're told in the book of Galatians, has become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, in order that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles by faith. So we've got two options, and we're going to share to people when we share with people, share with them that Christ has. Com- fulfilled everything now it's not that the moralist thinks highly about the law well he actually does and, and there are moral people in fact you talk to most people I was talking with Dan on Thursday we went out and had a cup of water together I mean we're, we're, we're a couple of cheap guys you want to go out and you don't want to spend anything <laughs> we said, we're, two cups of water please <laughs> But the conversation was rich. And he was telling me about some friends at work. And he asked one guy, he says, how do you think you get to heaven? And basically he said, I have got to hope that my good deeds are enough. And that's the moralist. Almost everybody thinks that way. And it's not that they don't think highly of the law. The problem is they think too highly of themselves. And they don't regard the law high enough. The Pharisee had that problem in Jesus' parable. He thought very, very highly of himself. And he thought very, very highly of the law, but he didn't think of the law high enough. Because the law has to be impeccably kept. Jesus said two men went into the temple to pray. One of them a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, you guys know the story. He said, I fast twice a week. The law didn't require that, so he went above the law. He says, I give everything of my alms to people that need it. And I thank God that I am not like this publican over here. The publican, the tax collector, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. he beat on his chest. And all he said was this, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what it means to repent. To repent means to acknowledge that I am a sinner. That's as simple as I can make it. Paul said this, I preach, he told this to the Ephesian elders when he got them together, he says, I preach repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So a sinner needs to repent and see himself as a sinner. He doesn't have to say, God, I'm never going to sin again. I'm never going to blaspheme again. I'm never going to covet again. I'm never going to do any of those things that violate the law again. Because in its essence, what you do is you put yourself back under a yoke of bondage, which Christ has set us free. That's why you and I are given the Holy Spirit in order that by the Spirit I put to death the deeds of the body. It's like putting the cart in front of the horse. I remember Rick Quinn telling me one time that he was walking down the street and his pastor friend said, "Rick, you come to church." He says, "No, because I have to do X, Y, and Z if I go to church." Pastor says, "No, you got it all wrong. You come to church." Rick came to church and he got saved, and now he's doing X, Y, and Z as a fruit of what the gospel produced. So let's not confuse it to people and tell them, if you want to get saved, you have got to stop X, Y, and Z. Tracy and I have got some neighbors that I've got a burden to witness to. And I know in their mind, if I start witnessing to them, they're going to say to me, but I've got to give up this lifestyle. No, that's wrong you have got to acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior and that God is holy and God doesn't just look lightly on your sin because that's most people's attitude about sin is that when I get to heaven, God's just going to look lightly on it and he's going to forgive. He's just going to say, well, you was just a good old boy. And I see all those good works. No, God doesn't have a ledger in heaven. God has righteousness that is perfect. And God has unrighteousness. And unless we have the perfect righteousness of Christ that's only obtained by faith, He will say, Depart from me, I don't know you. So Paul says there's two types of righteousness. And the other type of righteousness is this What is the righteousness that the law says? Verse 7. Verse 6. I'm sorry. But the righteousness of faith speaks on this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend in the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So faith-based righteousness is attainable for all. Anybody can attain that kind of righteousness. The other kind of righteousness, no one can attain to. So he's making it as simple as he can. Because the law means no one can attain righteousness. On the other hand, faith-based righteousness is accessible. No one can say, I can't live up to the demands in order to get saved. Why? Because you don't have to ascend into heaven. I can meet those demands. No one can say, I don't understand it. The gospel's uncomprehendable. Make it simple. Make it easy. No one can make that complaint. Jesus said this. In Matthew chapter 11, he says, Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, and you have revealed them unto babes, for even so, Father, it seemed good in your sight. Why was that good in God's sight? Because God doesn't like the proud. In fact, he resists the proud. Jesus went on to say, Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted, and whoever exalts himself, he will be humbled. Now, you don't want to be humbled by God, because if God has to humble you, it's eternally too late. So, faith-based faith, righteousness is acceptable. No one can say, I can't live up to the demands. No one can say, I don't understand it. And then, lastly, righteousness by faith is because no one can... Appeal to the lack of empirical evidence. You can't say, well, if God would just do this, then I'll believe. If God would just show me some kind of sign from heaven. No, God has already done everything necessary. You don't have to ascend up into heaven. Christ doesn't have to come back down. Christ doesn't have to be nailed to the cross again. You don't need some kind of miracle, a wonder, a mystery. It's not hidden from anybody. Because of the nearness of God, salvation is so available for everyone. What does the word of faith say? So let's look at verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That's the word of faith that we preach. Now we'll get to verse 9, the word that. The word that is an explanatory that. It's explaining what it means that God's word is near us, that it's in our heart and it's in our mouth. But let's just think about this idea that God is near us. It's not something that's inaccessible. It is near. Why is it near? Because God has placed eternity in man's heart. Not only has God placed eternity in man's heart, but God has spoken to us day unto day, night unto night. The heavens declare His glory. The firmament talk about His wonder and His majesty. There is no voice, there is no language where God is not heard. He's near us. In fact, Paul said this on the Mars Hill address. He says, God in His sovereignty... He's determined our appointed times. God has determined our boundaries. So there are things that God does determine. He has the right to do that. But why? What purpose does God do? The next verse tells us why. So that men might do what? That they might seek the Lord and grope for Him. That they might find Him, though He is not far from any of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. Our God is nearer than when we think, nearer than what we realize. And when we share the gospel with people, we've got to understand that God is on our side and God is working with us. God is preparing their hearts. God has put eternity in their minds. The Pharisees came after Jesus just performed a miracle. He healed ten lepers. One stranger, a foreigner, a Samaritan, came back and thanked him. And Jesus said, you were born again. Your faith saved you. And so the Pharisees look at Jesus and they said, show us when the kingdom of heaven is going to arrive. When is it going to come? And Jesus says, it's not going to come with observation. They had just seen this miracle. And Jesus says, it's not about that. you're not going to say over here or over there is the kingdom. That's waiting for the millennial time. That's what that kingdom is going to come. You'll actually find an earthly kingdom. Then Jesus says this to the Pharisees, The kingdom of heaven is within you. Now, I know that there's different translations of that. Some of them say the kingdom of heaven is among you. But I think that the correct translation is that the kingdom of heaven is within you. The Greek word there is only used in the New Testament for within. Jesus uses it in the parable about a cup. He says it's dirty on the outside, but within, and the inside. A.T. Robertson, who's probably one of the greatest Greek scholars of the last century, said that this word is very, very wrong rarely used among you. And the context here doesn't imply that the kingdom of heaven is already here. That's an amillennial thinking, it, 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 that, it's, that the kingdom of heaven is on earth right now and that Jesus is reigning right now. And, and he also said that it's not going to come with observation, the miracles, all the wonders. And so what I think Jesus was saying to those Pharisees, certainly they weren't saved. Certainly, they didn't have the kingdom of heaven within them, but I think Jesus is saying, if you guys would just humble yourself as a child, if you would just get rid of all of your self-righteousness, the kingdom of heaven is within you, if you will just look and acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you need to repent of your sinfulness and ask me to save you, I would do it. So, That's the word of faith that we're sharing with people. It is close. And how easy is it to get saved? It's as easy as this, that if you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, or the Lord Jesus. Now let me just stop here, because I think there's a lot of injustice to this verse. Paul is not teaching here that in order to get saved, you have got to make Jesus the Lord of every area of your life. How many of us are doing that right now? I I, I would say zero. And if that is a requirement to get saved, if that is a requirement to get saved, you have just put yourself under a yoke of bondage. So what does it mean if my mouth will confess... No one confesses Jesus is Lord, Paul taught in the Corinthian letter, except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to do a work of conviction in your heart that you no longer see Jesus as a prophet. You no longer see Jesus as a good moral teacher. You see Jesus, none other than who he is, Jesus Christ is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. And you confess with your mouth, I've repented. I understand now. I changed my mind about who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. There's a lot of religion here in the state of Utah. And that religion denies Jesus is sovereign God. That's what they need to repent of. If you will confess with your mouth because the Holy Spirit has shown you that he is. Now, there's going to be implications. I'm not saying that there's not implications of his lordship and his divinity over your life. There are implications for everything that you do. But it starts with the acknowledgement that he is Lord. Let me just share with you another story. Rick, I'm picking on you today because you give me a lot of good illustrations. (laughs) But Rick's got a—he's got a boundary dispute up, and um, it's not a dispute. He knows where the boundary line is. His neighbor knows where the boundary line is too, but the neighbor has built 13 feet of his driveway in Rick's land, and the guy's kind of got kind of mean with Rick and saying, "Well, you're gonna mess up everything, man. This is my—this is my retreat house, and I'm gonna do this for." And Rick's looking at him, thinking, "This is my land. <laughs> you know, I—I I bought this this land to build my cabin too. You know, there's two of us up here." And by the law, I can just tell you to, Vamanos, move that thing. Now, Rick knows that Jesus is Lord. But how does it play out now in his life? He struggles with it. We all do. He wants to go up there and tell that guy, You know what? I'm going to get a bulldozer, and I'm going to move it for you if you don't. But because Christ is Lord, he says, I know that winning him to Christ is a lot more important than having 13 feet of driveway. Now, every one of us, when we confess with our mouth, we're acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. And so there's going to be implications for our life, yes. But I don't have to agree with God and say, God, unless I commit lordship over everything in my life, there's no hope for any of us if that's the case. So what does it mean? It means that I acknowledge that Christ is Lord, and there's going to be implications for every area of your life, sure. And then we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. What does God look at? Go to the Acts chapter 15, Jerusalem Council. The Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit the same way we did, and Peter makes this observation. He says, God who knows the heart gave them the exact same Holy Spirit that he did with us at the beginning, referring back to Pentecost. God sees the heart. We are to circumcise our heart. We're to believe with our heart the very core of who we are. Yes, I trust that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. I don't have to have any empirical evidence for it. I don't have to physically touch his body. I I don't need the shroud of Turin. People send me that garbage all the time. I don't care if it's real or not. Jesus is alive. The stone was gone. Anyway, faith righteousness is universally offered. It's universally offered. For the Scripture says, whoever. Don't you love those whoever's? Remember that old hymn we used to sing? Whosoever surely meaneth me. Maybe I'm predating you guys. But I remember singing that as a kid. Whosoever surely meaneth me. I'm in that whosoever. You are in that whosoever. Whosoever believes on him. And the word to put to shame has the idea of being disappointed that God didn't do what he said he was going to do. Whoever calls upon him for salvation, find him wholly true. Such a high priest was fitting for you and I, who is holy, undefiled, separate from sinners, higher than the heavens. That's our Lord, and he never disappoints whoever calls. And then this is the kicker for the Jewish person for the same Lord is rich to all. There's no distinction between Jew or Greek, the same Lord, for whoever, the little Greek word pas means everyone. Now Paul's not teaching universalism because it's restricted, isn't it? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The indicative mood of reality. So what do we need to conclude this morning? I think one of the things I wanted to share is that spirituality, eludes most Christians. We're we're missing it, especially in America. We don't understand true spirituality. We have mixed it up with mysticism and asceticism and all the other isms, or we've mixed up spiritualism with hard work and discipline But many in America, I will just be honest with you, are too lazy to really find spirituality. And how do we find it? It is near you. It is in your heart. It is in your soul. If you will just acknowledge, I need Christ. I need him every hour. I walk and I live and I move in Christ. I have been raised with Christ, so therefore I will seek the things that are above where Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. I will set my emotions, my affections on things above, for Christ is my life and I'm hid with Christ. So we can't be lazy, but neither is spirituality found through self-abasement self, and, self uh, abasement and humiliation. When sharing the gospel, we need to be clear And we need to be concise. Paul said to the Corinthians, I knew nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Third, it's not hard to find. He is much nearer than you expect right now. I know Christians that would say to me, "Ah, if God would just speak to me. And they make it so mysterious and so difficult and so hard. Open up the word of God and ask him to do this. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from thy law. The word of faith that we preach is not difficult. Why? We need to tell people that the work has been finished on your behalf. That's how simple it is. We need to tell people that they don't need to trust in themselves. They don't need to trust in how good they're going to be after they're saved. They need to trust in the goodness of the Savior's grace. Full stop. Regeneration is completely the work of the Holy Spirit. What do we need to do? We do need to humble ourselves. We need to become as children. And that is not too difficult until pride gets in the way. The Lord is over every area of our life when we get saved. But we live that life by faith and we live it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, and I'll close with this. He says, I am who I am by the grace of God, period. And then he says this, Yet I labor more than all the apostles. But then he qualifies that. He says, but not I, but the grace of God that is within me. So yes, we do have a role to play in this. But even that role is by the grace and the goodness of God. So let's be clear and let's not complicate the gospel. Father, thank you, God, for Paul's inspired writing here. God, that we don't have to do something mysterious. We don't have to do something impossible. We don't have to do something difficult. Thank you, God, that the gospel is comprehensible to even the most simple of people. And God, the wisest man simply needs to become a fool, so in order that he might truly be wise. So God, I pray that you would give us holy boldness, knowing that we don't have to come up with some complicated story of getting people to come to Christ, but your gospel is sufficient. Christ's death was sufficient. His lifting up on the cross was completely sufficient. And the whosoever goes out to all the world. We thank you for this simple truth.